Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This week on Wealth Track, part two of our annual exclusive outlook with Wall Street's King of Economists, Ed Hyman, and leading global investor, Matthew McLennan. Their global outlook is next on Consuelo Mack WealthTrack. New York Life, along with Mainstay's family of mutual funds, offers investment and retirement solutions so you can help your clients keep good going. Additional funding provided by Clearbridge Investments, a Leg Mason company, Thornburg Investment Management, Active Management, Flexible Perspective. Ku and Patricia Ewan through the Ewan Foundation, committed to bridging cultural differences, and the Fairholm Foundation. Hello and welcome to this edition of WealthTrack. I'm Consuelo Mack. This week we present part two of our exclusive annual outlook with Wall Street's number one economist Ed Hyman and global value manager Matthew McLennan. Now, if you missed part one last week, which was on the state of the U.S. economy and markets, here are Hyman's highlights. A U.S. recession is several years away. We are in the mid-cycle of our economic recovery. Interest rates are still low, and inflation is not evident. A more cautious note was struck by leading global value investor Matthew McLennan, who is worried about peaking corporate profits, still rich market valuations, and extremely high levels of debt which can slow growth with even small interest rate increases. Ed Hyman is founder, chairman, and head of economic research at Evercore ISI. Hyman has been ranked the number one economist on Wall Street for a record-setting 38 years in Institutional Investor Magazine's survey of professional investors. He is joined by leading global value investor Matthew McLennan, who heads the global value team at First Eagle Investment Management and is portfolio manager of several funds, including the flagship First Eagle Global Fund, which has beaten its world allocation fund category and its benchmark on both a total return and risk-adjusted basis since he took over the fund in 2008 from legendary investor Jean-Marie Evayard. This week, our focus goes global. The U.S. led the recovery out of recession in 2009, and it is leading it once again. After a couple of years of synchronized and accelerating global growth, much of the rest of the world is slowing. After outpacing the U.S. in 2016 and 2017, the 19-nation eurozone is lagging. The European Central Bank recently trimmed its growth forecasts as it attempts to end its massive and unprecedented four-year stimulus program. China, the world's second largest economy, is also slowing as it grapples with the challenges of overbuilding, high levels of bank and government debt, and concerns over trade disputes with the U.S. I began part two of our discussion by asking our guests to give us a new headline to replace the old synchronized global growth theme. So I haven't used that headline since about March of last year. It was quietly put to bed and uh, growth is anything but synchronized now, uh, with Europe being slow, China slowing, and the U.S. still 
doing pretty well. But if you add the three together, the tagline is uh, global slowdown. Right. And uh, I guess that would probably persist in, you know, this into 2019. Uh, I think the U.S. is going to slow, you know, about a percentage point from three mm -hmm. to two. And uh, I don't really see Europe or China making up for that. Uh, so I think it'd be a, a slower year. Right. And, and what, what would your headline be for the year ahead? If I look at the international markets, uh, I would say that uh, the, big, the big question mark, if you will, is the, the change in the, the business model of China, if you will. And what does that mean for the world? China was one of the, uh, the countries that you and forces that you mentioned last year, mm -hmm. a year ago that you were very concerned about. So what's, what is going on with China that is, would cause you more concern? I think that there's multiple dimensions to this. Uh, there is the, the business cycle dimension. Like the United States, China's also been at a low level of unemployment. So they're at a fairly full level of resource utilization in their economy. Mm -hmm. um, the second thing is that uh, China was the epicenter of credit creation. Uh, in the world economy over the last 10 or 15 years. Um, and in the last five or six years, a lot of that was in the shadow banking sector of China. As they've tried to rein that in, uh, you've seen a collapse in the rate of monetary growth in China. It was growing at about a 15% annualized pace, and it's now down to about an 8% pace. Now, miraculously, um, the real growth numbers have remained unchanged in that environment. But the, the so you're saying that uh, it's not possible, right? That that, that the well, I think real growth numbers have remained unchanged it's, when it's, they're it's a, contracting it's a, it's credit. It's a question mark. Um, secondly, I talked about some of the language that was evolving uh, with respect to the political landscape in China, and in the last year, we've seen uh, the term limit on the presidency removed. Right. I mean, this is a new Mao. In th the this is a, a geopolitical development that's very meaningful in the context of the last generation. The world's mm -hmm. second largest economy the largest marginal contributor to growth um, goes, uh, becomes more overtly autocratic by mm -hmm. removing the term limit on the presidency. Ed, your view on China, and as far as not only the Chinese economy you know, on its own, but also the impact that what's going on in China, as Matt describes it, and, and how would you describe it, uh, has on the world economy in the U.S. Yep. specifically? So uh, first, I think China's uh, pivotal to the world economy. And because? Because it's really been the producer of uh, growth in the world economy. Mm -hmm. They're growing 6 7%, mm -hmm. and it's pretty big now. Right. And so its contribution to global growth has been enormous. Uh, we survey 21 companies uh, every week, same company, same person, that do business in China. And that survey has clearly hooked over. Mm -hmm. It's now below 50. Mm -hmm. uh, when they had the hard landing episode, it was down in the mid-30s. Mm. So it's not there, but it's, it's going the wrong direction. I have a lot of contacts with people that do business in China, like the private equ equity firms, mm -hmm. and they all bring back stories of slowdown. Mm -hmm. uh, now, inflation in China is probably less than 2%. Mm. Amazing. That's amazing. So this low inflation is a global phenomenon because the forces are global in nature, like, right, competition like, like technology, et cetera. Mm -hmm. The point at which Matt and I disagree is really on timing. Mm -hmm. Everything he has, I believe, completely. I just think that when uh, we face the deficit problems uh, that are in the system, uh, I think we'll do that when rates are considerably higher than they are now and when you have a uh, inverted yield curve. Mm -hmm. uh, I also uh, hope, uh, I would say hope, as 
that at that point people will be more optimistic than they are now. I assume that at, at the end people might get optimistic. And at the moment, uh, it's, it's remarkable how the, the, the thought leaders uh, in the financial markets, I'd say most of them, uh, have a pretty negative view, like a recession is in 2019. Uh, but I will say this brings us to a very important juncture mm -hmm. right now, and that is that uh, China, run as a dictatorship, mm -hmm. uh, they're under pressure to not let this trade issue continue to be a problem. So there are two possibilities. One is that China is a long-term player. They're going to just wait until Trump is gone. And uh, 2025, this is World War IV. Mm -hmm. uh, the other view is that you know, Trump wants a deal, and China would like to have a deal. My, uh, my, my feeling is that there's, there's real pressure on both China and the U.S., or let's say put it in the way you put it, uh, Matt, on, on Xi and Trump mm -hmm. uh, to work something out sooner than, than later. And that's one view which I have. Mm -hmm. uh, the other view is that it's going to be a lot later mm -hmm. and there's many uh, rivers to cross before you get right. there. Yeah. One of the things that constrains them is that they already have a fairly easy fiscal right. policy. Uh, and their ability to ease monetary policy aggressively is constrained by the fact that if they want to do a deal with the Americans on trade, they can't depreciate their currency too aggressively. Yeah. Yeah, we have a team that uh, covers China for us. Right. And they've been focusing on the stimulus measures they're putting into place. When I worry is when inflation is going up mm -hmm. and uh, central banks are having to tighten uh, and rates are higher than they are now, uh, that's when I start to get nervous. If you're saying that's what makes you nervous, then you shouldn't be nervous right now because you're not seeing inflation pick up, you're not seeing interest rates rise. Uh, that's, substantially. Yes and no. So right? first, or, as well as you know, I'm always nervous. Yes, all right. But uh, it goes back to the same thing as, as not being late cycle. Late cycle right. is when central banks are more aggressively tightening. Uh, and I remember uh, when the Fed tightened in uh, 2007, uh, I was beside myself because at that point it was very clear that housing was having a major problem. Right. Uh, and rates were five, going to five and a quarter, and it didn't seem right. it was right. the wrong it, thing it, to do. It seemed like the wrong thing. I thought it was the wrong thing, and I don't feel that way right now uh, at two and a quarter. Mm -hmm. And I assume, uh, I, I think right, right now people are, like I mentioned, people are assuming that they tighten one more time, two and a half. Mm -hmm. and, that the Fed does. That the Fed tightens right. one more time, two and a half, two and a quarter, and uh, then they pause there and... Uh, doesn't threaten the yield curve too much. If they one, tighten three, three times, then they'll go, they'll go above the bond yield. But one, one of the things that's been, I think, a salutary lesson in the international markets is that we've seen cycles in certain big economies that haven't had the normal monetary drivers behind them. And I think of Japan, for example. Mm -hmm. So you know, talk it, about I Japan. Mean, basically, you, you've had an economy with pretty much 0% interest rates for a couple of decades. Yeah. And they've still had business cycles despite the yes. absence uh, of you know monetary policy tightening, and so um, you know, and in fact, over the last twenty years, that market has gone sideways with volatility, while interest rates have been zero. So that is what I call a nominal ice age. Uh, and 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 in fact, even in Europe, if you look at the Euro stocks fifty, uh, it's where it was twenty years ago. 
with volatility. Uh, and, you, and you have uh, economies uh, within Europe, uh, particularly in Northern European economies like Germany, with very low interest rates, or Switzerland with very low interest mm-hmm. rates. Um, and sometimes in those economies, what's created cycles rather than traditional uh, monetary policy tightening has been attempts to, to tighten fiscal policy or windows of uncertainty uh, around uh, sovereign uh, or government uh, creditworthiness, uh, as we saw in the south of Europe, uh, or extreme currency movements one way or the other. And so there are, I guess, other forces that can lead indebted economies uh, you know, into recession, I would say, other than just sort of the, the real interest rate going up. And we've seen it internationally. I'll just say, we're not Japan. I tell you, I know the US well. I've been to Japan 50 times. You can believe that. <laughs> and uh, they had an ice age in, in nominal GDP. Uh, and our, GD, our nominal GDP is way above where it was in 2008. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, you have Tokyo, which actually is doing well. It's yeah. a very prosperous uh, city. But uh, the other cities are, are just right. withering on the vine. And the U.S. has, I don't know what, 50 major uh, cities that are doing well. Mm-hmm. And so the, the, the U.S. Uh, has really distanced itself, I think, from a Japan m- model. Uh, but there's still the questions you raise about whether or not monetary policy will work mm-hmm. again. And, uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm watching Japan uh, closely. One thing I'd, I'd say, we had a, a visitor in this morning, and Japan really is opening up uh, Immigration. Yes, it's amazing because they need they, they, they need they, workers they need yeah, to get right? out of the ice age. Yeah. <laughs> so, as far as your view of Japan as an investor, I mean, I, I, my understanding is that we're you know Europe might be slowing, but Japan is actually doing okay. Is that right? What's well, I, I would say one of the headwinds for Japan, and it's a similar headwind arguably for Germany going forward, is that these are very manufacturing intensive economies and. Manufacturing is being automated. So mm. those jobs are essentially disappearing. And, and the U.S. economy, uh, as Ed rightly pointed out, is, is much more you know, service intensive. And Ed talked about some of the new uh, economy services areas. And I think um, that's been a source of vibrancy for the United States that's perhaps a headwind for Japan. But despite the, um, the negatives of Japan from a top-down standpoint, uh, we've managed to find vibrant individual companies in Japan. And I think that's the, the lesson for us when we look at investing is that the U.S. does not have a monopoly on good companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it may have a more vibrant economy overall, but it does not have a monopoly on good companies. And does so, any country have a monopoly no, on good companies? No, they don't. <laughs> and and, and nor does any one country have a monopoly on currency strength. Uh-huh. That's highly cyclical. And, and the U.S., by the way, has large current account deficits. The Eurozone and Japan run a current account surplus. Both the Eurozone and the Yen are cheap in real terms relative to where they have been over the last 20 years, reflecting the higher levels of interest rates in the United States. If the interest rate comes into question in the United States, those currencies could be strong, Mm -hmm. not weak. And so there are things that can go right uh, for investments internationally. And and in fact, bottom up, um, we've seen a little bit more opportunity internationally than we've seen in the United States. If you look at our portfolios, the cash levels have come down a little bit more in our international-only strategies uh, as we've put money to work uh, in this recent sell-off. And, and where are you finding opportunities? Just give us an example. I mean, I, I mentioned uh, that it, at First Eagle, you look for companies that are resilient. Mm-hmm. You're value investors. So what kinds of opportunities are you seeing overseas? 
So um, like we'd look for in the United States, uh, there's going to be some companies that uh, participate in, in, in economic growth and some companies that are more uh, defensive and resilient. And, and to give you some uh, sense for the range of that, on the one hand, you might have a company in Japan like Fanuc, which is a world leader in factory automation, uh, which you know, has been very weak on the back of concerns about China, but it has net cash on the balance sheet. Mm -hmm. uh, and it has a business that's, that's poised to do well over the next decade uh, as robotics grow, uh, servo motor grow, and, and, and factory automation equipment uh, deepens its, its reach. Uh, on the other hand, we may have more defensive investments, companies like uh, Group Danone, for example, mm -hmm. uh, which is the world leader in uh, yogurt and bottled water. Um, these are healthy eating categories, uh, and um, this is a company that's invested in its brands uh, and its relevance to consumers. And uh, in both cases, you know, we, you know, we think you can get you know, mid or you know, mid single digit or higher uh, free cash flow yields from these businesses. And these are long term holdings. These are long term holdings, uh, and you know, if you have those kinds of investments with some gold as a potential hedge, right. uh, you know, we think that you, you, you'll you'll survive the episodic crises uh, that that happen uh, in international markets. And uh, these are global businesses as well. So you're not subject to just one currency. If I may uh, support Matt on this topic, I was on a, a panel and uh, one of the people on the panel who's uh, one of the greatest investors of our age uh, and a stock bottom-up investor, much like you, he was asked, well, what country do you like the most? And he says, I don't invest in countries. I invest in companies. <laughs> exactly what you're saying, <laughs> which sounds right to me, too. Except in this day and age, with passive investing being so popular, and, and I'm thinking of we've had a, you know, a decade of massive flows to index funds, some of them being country funds. I mean, the S&P 500 index funds are basically, a lot of it is a bet on the U.S. Um, what's your, you know, what's, as an economist and looking at countries, you know, what's your advice to investors, Ed? I would, I would invest in his fund. That's what I would do. <laughs> no, I... Uh, how concerned, I mean, are you concerned well, about the, the vulnerability that, in, that so many investors now have to index funds, for instance? Well, you can't, you know, if you're, you know, the things change. Yes. And this has been going on for a long time. Uh, there, there's the move from active to passive. So you have all these funds in passive managers. Yes. Which has got to be introducing some sort of unusual behavior mm -hmm. in financial markets. And then you have ETFs, which is another, and they've got- Form of passive. Passive mm -hmm. investing. And uh, with the way the market has been so volatile this year, I'm beginning to wonder if maybe those things are creating some volatility in the markets uh, because of the mechanical way in which they, they move money around. So it's kind of a, these algorithm tradings, this yes. is automatic trading, right, and, that happens uh, when so, they're... So it's, and it's possible uh, that you could get some sort of, you know, self-feeding uh, right. decline uh, in, in the market that might be actually happening now. Uh, but uh, it's certainly possible in my mind that you get, you know, some sort of cathartic drop right. here. And, if, and I do worry about the prevalence of, of passive and uh, ETFs. I just want to echo one thing that Ed is saying here, and that is that uh, the risk of a lot of money migrating into ETF strategies is by definition, when someone invests in an ETF, they are investing in a manner that uh, 
is willfully ignoring the price signals of the individual companies underneath mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or the shift in market position or capital structure vulnerabilities or management behavior that may be aggressive. And there are entire uh, indices, for example, that haven't done much uh, over the last couple of decades. And I mentioned a couple to you before, the Eurostox uh, or, or the Nikkei. And so just owning an index uh, is not a panacea. Right. And in fact, um, if you look at the history of all stocks uh, listed on the US Stock Exchange from the 20s onwards, the majority have actually underperformed cash. Even though the market as a whole has outperformed handily, um, it's a minority of companies that tend to deliver the outperformance over time. And so, you know, it's our belief that um, the role of investing is to thoughtfully curate a business garden, uh, you know, to identify companies that uh, are at the right price, uh, that afford you a margin of safety, uh, that have lower risk characteristics in terms of the stability of their market position, um, their capital structure, and, and managements that are kind of growing the business at a sustainable pace. Uh, that's very hard to think about if all you're doing is allocating capital between sectors uh, to ETFs. Right. Or between countries. Yeah. yeah. Ed, personally, what are you doing with your, how are you investing personally in capital? I'm, you know, I have a fair amount of cash. Right. Uh, anyhow, is that just anyhow, a, just because of normal course of, of events? Yeah, life's uncertainty. Yeah, I like to sleep at night, mm -hmm. uh, and and after that, uh, you know, I've been really fortunate. I've, I have a, a number of long-only managers mm -hmm. that have done very well, and in part because the market's mm -hmm. gone up. And, right. And and then uh, I have a number of hedge funds. Uh, who've not done, not that, done that well. well. <laughs> right, so you're not, you're not panicking. You're not, I mean, you think that the U.S. economy is going to continue. I, I may be panicking, but I'm not, I'm not doing <laughs> you're it. You're not acting on it. Right. Anyway, but you're not. I mean, you're, 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 yeah, you're I, positive about the U.S. economy. Yeah. And I, I mainly like owning assets. Right. I, whatever. Uh, I don't, gold isn't my favorite, but mm -hmm. you're owning something. You know, a Da Vinci or a football team mm -hmm. or an equity or Salesforce. Uh, housing, a commercial building. Right. But just because they keep printing money, there's a bias to go up in price. Long-term diversified portfolio, the one investment, thinking again globally, what, what would it be, Matt? I think um, now's the time to ha at least have some of your money outside the United States mm -hmm. dollar. Uh, and, and I think um, if, if I can sort of put it frame it in that way that um, a little bit of currency diversification, and we, we don't try to um, predict these things in the short term, and who knows if the Fed keeps raising rates and interest rates stay low elsewhere, the dollar could strengthen, but um, a number of currencies have been weak against the US dollar, uh, and I'd include gold uh, in, that, mm -hmm. in that basket as well. So the willingness to just recognize that there are good companies uh, outside the United States and that the US dollar won't always be strong if, if, interest, if the interest rate story comes into question here is just an element of realism uh, that I think people should focus on right now. And if I think about my own uh, personal investments, uh, the last uh, personal investment I made uh, was to buy a little bit more of our um, overseas fund. Mm -hmm. All right, so that to get that inter more international exposure, and if, is there would there be one investment for you from thinking from a again a global point of view? We had talked about Salesforce from a domestic point of view. Well, a company like Salesforce or, or many other multinationals, uh, be it Exxon or Weyerhaeuser, they're basically global mm -hmm. companies, okay. and uh, Salesforce is one of those. Right, and is 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 there anything? Is there any asset in particular, Ed, looking around the world? that you think is undervalued now? No, N nothing's, nothing's really uh, undervalued. 
At any rate, thank you both so much again for being so, uh, on Wealth Track be for our, yeah. our New Year outlook. Ed Hyman and Matt McLennan, thanks so much. Thank you. One of my perennial New Year's resolutions is to read more books that are inspiring and not necessarily work-related. I am a huge Winston Churchill fan, as were my parents. At the age of 19, my dad was an army private in the Battle of the Bulge, where he was captured, became a German POW, and for months was reported missing in action. Churchill was a hero in our home. From an early age, I remember listening to recordings of Churchill's most famous speeches and standing taller because of them. This week's action point is to read two excellent but lesser-known books about the unimaginable challenges Churchill faced upon becoming prime minister in 1940. The first is Five Days in London, May 1940, by eminent historian John Lucas. It is about the five crucial days, May 24th to 28th, that literally could have changed the world. Churchill was fighting powerful enemies within Britain who still wanted a negotiated peace, and Hitler, whose armies had blitzkrieged through Europe and had British soldiers cornered in France. We all know how it ended, but I had no idea how perilous Churchill's and Western civilization's fates really were. The other is Citizens of London, the Americans who stood with Britain in its darkest, finest hour by Lynn Olson. There were three Americans, CBS correspondent Edward R. Morrow, millionaire Avril Harriman, and U.S. Ambassador John Gilbert Winant, who became part of Churchill's inner circle and were instrumental in finally persuading a reluctant FDR to back Britain. Both books are fascinating, riveting, and inspiring. They make great gifts for loved ones and yourself. Next week, we move on to China for an exclusive interview with pioneering Asia investor Mark Headley, now chairman of the board of his old firm, Matthews Asia. In the meantime, in our extra feature, Ed Hyman and Matt McLennan will share their current favorite books with us, which we will have for you on WealthTrack.com. We welcome your comments and suggestions, so please reach out to us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for watching. Have a lovely weekend, a wonderful Christmas holiday, and make the week ahead a profitable and a productive one.